It's been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I guess this is true, well, so long as we're actually imitating people who are worthy of imitation. Sadly, there are so many people in the world today who are being imitated, and yet uh, their standard is not worthy of imitation. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the fact is that uh, there are many kids here in the world today who are following after uh, the social media influencers who are now abusing their platforms as they encourage others to engage in what I would call dumb and dangerous challenges. Uh, For example, it was back in 2018 when some social media influencers began to encourage their audience to take the Tide Pod Challenge. As a result, kids started eating these small plastic packets of laundry detergent, which, mind you, are filled with dangerous chemicals. And as a result, there are many kids who, because they were following the, the, the wrong crowd, they ended up with severe burns to the mouth and to the esophagus and even some to the respiratory tract. Uh, And then in 2021, some social media influencers, they started encouraging their fans to engage in the fire challenge. That's right, fire, fire, yeah. Simply put, the people were being encouraged to pour flammable liquids on themselves and then light themselves on fire. And as you might expect, many ended up in the ICU with third and some even fourth degree burns. And there are kids who are, are scarred forever. Uh, because they were imitating a social media influencer. More recently, some social media influencers started to encourage their followers to play the blackout game or the choking game, as some call it. And it's sad to say that many kids have accepted this challenge because they're following uh, you know, after their favorite social media star. And, and, and as they look for these creative ways to cut off their oxygen supply, well, it is tragic that there are kids that, uh, that are dying. The, this challenge continues to claim the lives of many who fail to realize that some influencers should not be imitated. Well, thankfully for us, I'm guessing that we're all smart enough to realize that these social media influencers, they aren't worthy of our imitation. And yet at the same time, you know, I'm sure that we're all to some degree imitating someone, I have no doubt that many of us uh, find role models in the world today and we look to them and think, oh, if I could just be more like that person. But the question is, are they, uh, are they worthy of our imitation? And, and, and while the world is filled with people who, I can assure you, are not worthy of imitation, I'd like to point out that there are, are actually many people in the Bible who are. There are many people in the Bible who are worthy of our imitation. And with that being the case, I'd like to consider one such individual whose name was Simon. As we consider the spiritual standard that was set by this person named Simon, we're going to spend our time today considering how the Simon standard will lead us to become seekers. Secondly, we'll learn that the Simon standard will lead us to become servers. Thirdly and finally, the Simon standard will lead us to become sharers. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Here we're introduced to a Cyrenian man. His name was Simon. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. We've actually spent several weeks now looking at Luke's account of the night when our Savior was surrounded by temple soldiers. And I'll remind you that the majority of his followers ended up fleeing for their lives as the Lord was being led away. And while Simon Peter continued following the Lord that evening, he followed at a distance. And, you know, it wasn't long before he denied knowing Jesus Christ and then also fled for his life. With that being the case, you might be interested to to know here that Simon Peter was not there at the cross of Christ, but there was another Simon who was. There was another Simon who was there when the Lord Jesus was being led away to be crucified. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 23. If you would look with me there at verse 26, because here Luke writes, Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, here in our text today, we're introduced to this Cyrenian man named Simon. And while we don't know a great deal about this man who, you know, shares the same forename as Simon Peter, 
I'd like to take some time to consider the few things that we do know about this man. First of all, we do know for a fact that his name was Simon. Yeah, yeah, we know that. And you're like, Nadoi. Okay, so, so his name was Simon. What, what does that mean? Well, actually, this was a very common name there in the first century. As a matter of fact, as we examine the New Testament scriptures, we find several people named Simon. And then also, this is the same as Simeon. And, and there's many people named Simeon uh, as well. The name Simon was so common that it would be like going to California and meeting a parent who named their child Chaz. You know, so very common name. We actually find in the scriptures uh, two disciples named Simon. There's Simon Peter, and then there's Simon the Zealot. He was a very zealous individual. I should also remind you that the father of Judas Iscariot, his name was also Simon. Then there was Simon the Leper. There was Simon the Sorcerer. And then there was also Simon, the brother of Jesus. And I know that will shock many Catholics to know that Jesus had brothers, but the fact is that Mary went on to have many kids. One of her sons, she named Simon. Here in our text today, we find Simon the Cyrenian. And and as we consider the popularity of this name, you might be interested to know that the Hebrew name Simon actually means to hearken with acceptance or or, or to hear uh, with a desire to receive the information. It refers to a, a, a listener who has obedient ears. And while I'm sure we all know someone who will listen to what we're saying and yet you know, they're just kind of like not really paying attention or, or you can tell that they're not really receiving what we're saying. Well, the name Simon actually speaks of those who listen and try to receive uh, what's being said with the desire to obey. And I can imagine that many parent, uh, parents there in the first century were naming their baby boys Simon all in the hopes that they might become Simon's. You know, you consider the whole concept of Simon Says, you know, and, and, and these parents are just kind of like, oh, I, I know what little boys are like. I know that little boys don't like listening and hearing with obedient ears. And so I can imagine that a lot of parents are just kind of like, let's, with all hope, name our little boy Simon that he might listen with obedient ears. Well, as for Simon the Cyrenian, it seems to me that he was, in fact, a man who wanted to listen with these teachable, obedient ears. To make my case, we must not fail to notice here that Simon, he had actually traveled from his home country there in Cyrene all the way to Jerusalem. Now, just to be clear about this journey, it'll help you to know that Cyrene was situated on the northern coast of Africa. This is the region that we now call Libya. And while this area was initially settled by the Greeks in 630 B.C., Well, it also became the home of a large number of Hellenistic Jews by the time of Christ's crucifixion. So then with that, we don't know if Simon was actually of African descent or if he was a Greek and and coming from the, the Greeks who had moved into this region earlier or if he was actually a Hellenized Jew. We can't say with all certainty. But what we do know is that he had actually traveled all the way from his home there in Cyrene all the way to Jerusalem. In other words, he traveled nearly 800 miles, and it was a journey that probably took about a month. So so imagine feeling the need to travel for a month to go all the way to Jerusalem. And while we're not told the reason for this journey, I'll remind you that Simon had actually arrived there in Jerusalem just in time for the pilgrimage feast, which is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or otherwise known as Passover. He had arrived there in Jerusalem just in time for Passover. And with that being the case, you know, I have a hard time believing that the timing of his arrival was some sort of coincidence. I don't think that he just by chance ended up in Jerusalem after a month-long journey at the time of the Passover. No, I believe that he was there by design, that he intended to be there to celebrate the Passover. And to explain why I say this, I want to consider the instructions that Moses presented in Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's actually found in verse 16 where uh, Moses writes this. He says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Here in these verses, we find Moses He's presenting the people of Israel with these instructions uh, which would lead every male 
you know, of the people of God, it would lead them to three annual festivals that the Lord was commanding them to observe. And listen, this was true of every Israelite, no matter where they were in the world. The Lord was expecting the men of Israel to travel to the temple for these three pilgrimage festivals, which include the Passover. That being the case, I have no doubt that Simon the Cyrene was there in Jerusalem because he was an obedient listener. He knew what God was expecting. He knew what Deuteronomy chapter 16 said. And he knew that he was supposed to be there in Israel, there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And not only that, but I also believe that Simon was a man who was seeking our Savior at this point in time. Now listen, I realize that this is nothing more than pure speculation. And yet it seems unlikely to me that this man who had traveled for a month from Cyrene to Jerusalem just so happened to be there at the Passover, passing by at the very moment when the soldiers were preparing to lead the Lord Jesus to the place where they crucified those who were sentenced to capital punishment. It's possible that he was just right there at the right time, but it seems like an incredible coincidence. Seems more likely to me that Simon the Cyrene was actually there in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, standing there in front of the praetorium as a seeker of our Savior. To justify my speculation, let's consider Matthew's account of this situation. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Specifically, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. As you make your way to the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to point out that we've already considered the reason for why Simon was there in Jerusalem. We've considered the reason being that he was there for the Passover festival. It's also my belief that he actually went there to the Roman praetorium on this very day in order to learn more about the trial of Jesus Christ. To prove my point, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 27, I want to begin reading at verse 27. Here we learn that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, talking about the praetorium here, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Now here in these verses, we learn that this Cyrenian man named Simon, we just so happened to be right there at the praetorium of the governor's palace, at the very moment when they were leading the Lord Jesus out to be crucified. And while it's possible, just very possible that all the movies are correct, that this guy Simon is just casually walking through the area at this very point in time, and oh, just, he's just the right guy at the right place. And that's how the movies you know, present the story. I take real issue with this, though. Because remember, there's multitudes around this praetorium. There are multitudes there looking to see what's going to happen with Jesus Christ. And he's the guy in front of the whole crowd, just so happens to be there? Uh, I doubt that. It's possible that Simon just happened to be there, and yet it's my belief that he was there as part of this crowd that had gathered together in order to discover what would happen to the Lord throughout this trial. And if my speculation is correct, then it's very possible that Simon not only came to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, but in the process of arriving in Jerusalem, had heard the news about Jesus Christ and came to seek our Savior to find out, is this the Messiah or not? As we consider how Simon is at the very front of this crowd as what I believe to be a seeker, I can't help but to think of something that Paul said in Acts chapter 17. There he informs the Athenians of this. He says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings 
so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. From this, we can see that God has this predetermined plan. It's, it's, a, it's been determined to, to pre-appoint the times and the boundaries of our dwellings. That's very interesting to, to consider, especially as we consider that, that the end of this pre-appointment is so that we should seek the Lord. He's determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings so that we should seek the Lord. Why are you here in Austin, Texas in the year 2022? So that you should seek the Lord. Why was Simon living there in Cyrene? And why was he traveling to Jerusalem? And why was he there at the very moment when the trial of Jesus Christ was taking place? Because God knew that this was the very best opportunity for Simon to seek the Lord and find him. And knowing that it's the Lord's desire for every person to come to repentance, I truly believe that it was the providential plan of God for Simon the Cyrene to carry the cross of Christ so that he could be converted. With that being the case, I encourage every person to follow the Simon standard by becoming seekers of our Savior no matter where we are. And here's the good news is that those who, who truly seek our Savior will find him. I like the way that the Lord put it in Jeremiah chapter 29. It's there where he declares, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Those who will prayerfully seek our Savior with all of their heart will find him. That's a promise from the Lord. That those who seek our Savior with their whole heart will find him. And the prophet Isaiah confirms this in Isaiah chapter 55 where he declares, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I love that. With that being the case, we ought to encourage every person to follow this Simon standard by spending time seeking our Savior with their whole heart. At the same time, it's also crucial for Christians to realize that, that we've been called to continue seeking him even after salvation. I like the way that the Lord Jesus summed it up back in Luke chapter 11. I'll remind you, in Luke 11, the Lord Jesus says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. From this, we can see that it's not only important to seek the salvation of our Savior by faith in Jesus Christ, but we should continue after the day of our salvation. Uh, we ought to continue seeking our Savior as we prayerfully ask him to guide us into his perfect will. We ought to ask him to guide us and seek out his will and look for those open doors so that we can continue following our Savior by faith. Therefore, I Encourage every Christian to continue following the Simon standard by becoming those teachable believers who are prayerfully seeking our Savior for his divine guidance and then listening with obedient ears as we move forward in faith. In this way, the seekers of our Savior soon become the servers of our Savior. And this brings us to our second point because, listen, the Simon standard not only helps us to become seekers, but the Simon Standard also helps us to become servers. And to explain what I'm saying, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 23. I want to draw your attention back to verse 26, where Luke again writes, Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, as we take another look at this verse, we must not fail to consider the reason for why Simon was compelled to carry the cross of Christ Jesus. And with that, I want to remind you here uh, for, for a moment here, I want to take a moment to remind you uh, that the Lord Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. This is what we call the hypostatic union of Christ. He's 100% God and 100% man, and I don't know how to explain that. 
But what I do know is that the logos of God took on human frailty in the incarnation so that he could tabernacle amongst us in a way that I don't think we can understand here on this side of eternity. With that, it's important for us to remember that the deity of Jesus didn't come to animate his humanity. And that's so important to understand. That helps us to understand why Jesus didn't know the day of his second coming. The humanity of Jesus didn't know the day of his second coming. And the reason why is because God the Father didn't reveal that to his humanity. In this way, we can see that the humanity of Jesus Christ not only contained the deity of the Logos, but also constrained the deity of the Logos by design. That's right. The deity of Jesus Christ was constrained within his humanity. And the reason why is because the deity of the Logos was here to experience all of the limitations of mortal men. The Logos didn't come to animate a human, but to experience life as a human. I like the way that Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. There he describes this paradox by informing us that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, Jesus constrained his divine nature within his humanity. And in this way, the deity of Jesus Christ was able to experience all of the weaknesses that the rest of us all endure. And not only that, but in his humanity, the Lord Jesus also suffered all of the temptations that we struggle with here in this world. And I like the way that Paul summed it up in Hebrews chapter 4. It's in verse 1 where he declares, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's right. Jesus Christ came and was in all points tempted in the same way that we are, and yet... He didn't give in and sin, not even once. Now, as we consider the way in which the deity of the Lord Jesus set aside his glory as he took on the form of a bondservant, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the scourging that he endured on this day, it left him without the physical strength that he would need to physically carry his cross. I'll remind you, the Roman scourge was a short whip, which was made of two or three leather straps. They were knotted with a number of small pieces of sharp metal or bone, which were attached at various intervals. As a result, the recipient of the Roman scourge would, would suffer deep lacerations with torn flesh and exposed muscles and excessive bleeding. And listen, this beating was oftentimes so brutal that many didn't even survive the scourging to even make it to the cross. There were, there were many who were condemned to die on the cross, and yet they didn't even survive the scourging. And with that being the case, we, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that our Savior didn't have the physical strength that he needed to carry his own cross. Could the deity of the Logos carry the cross? Of course. The deity of the Logos could have picked up the cross and flown with it all the way to Calvary. But the Logos didn't come to animate a human, but rather to experience life as a human. And in his humanity, he had been beaten within an inch of his life. And it's for this reason that the soldiers who scourged our Savior decided that they had to find someone else to carry the cross because they weren't going to do it. No, they simply decided to lay hold of the first strong man that they saw. And while Luke tells us that they laid hold of a certain man named Simon, who was a Cyrenian, the apostle Matthew also tells us in his gospel account that they actually compelled Simon. They compelled him to bear the cross of Christ. The word compelled that Matthew used in his gospel account was translated from a Greek word, which is used of those who are pressed into public service. They compelled him. They pressed him 
into public service. They forced him to become a servant of our Savior. They forced him to step up and serve as they laid the cross of our Christ upon the shoulders of Simon. And with this in mind, I want to take another look here at verse 26. Luke 23, verse 26. Luke tells us that they led Jesus away and they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now that word bear is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who carry some sort of burden. It also speaks of those who uphold something with endurance. And as we consider the way that Simon the Cyrene bore the burden of Christ's cross as he carried this all the way to Calvary, uh, we ought to celebrate his service. We ought to celebrate the way that he served our Savior. And the reason why is because it was there on that cross that, that Simon carried to Calvary. It's there where the Lord Jesus then was able to bear our sins so that we could be saved. Jesus wasn't physically able to carry the cross to Calvary. And so Simon did it for him. And it was there at Calvary where then Jesus bore our sins upon the tree that had been carried by Simon. Now, now don't get me wrong, because I'm not suggesting that the service of Simon was necessary for his salvation. I'm certainly not suggesting that the service of Simon was necessary for our salvation. And without debate, you know, Simon, if he hadn't have been there at this point in time, those Roman soldiers would have just compelled someone else to carry the cross. And so I'd be telling you the story about George or Sam or somebody else. But it was Simon. Simon bore the cross for Christ Jesus. Simon was the man who carried the cross of Christ to Calvary. Simon was the servant who bore that burden so that Christ might be able to bear the burden of our sins. And in light of Simon's example, I want to take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I willing to bear the burden of Christ's cross so that others might be able to see Jesus in the way that I live my life? With this question of mine, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said back in Luke chapter 9. It's been a little while, but I'll remind you back in Luke 9, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. From this we can see that Christ Jesus has actually called every Christian to deny themselves so that we can set aside our own agenda, uh, all with the goal of carrying the cross as we follow Jesus. And while it's true that Simon the Cyrene was compelled to serve our Savior by literally carrying a wooden cross, it's also true that our Savior is now compelling those who trust in him to become his bondservants. Jesus Christ is compelling Christians to become his servants who are accomplishing the great commission of Christ Jesus so that as we bear the cross of Christ, others are able to see the love of the Lord in our lives. With that, I would like to suggest that the Simon Standard helps us to see that those who are truly seeking our Savior will then be compelled to become the servants of our Savior. With this as our goal, we should take some time to examine our own lives by asking, am I that kind of a servant? Am I a servant of our Savior? And with this question in mind, I want to consider the, ch the challenge that James presents in his little epistle. And so if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of James, well, I just want to take a moment to assure you that no one is going to work their way into heaven. Simon didn't work his way into heaven by bearing the cross of Christ. We're not going to work our way into heaven by taking up the cross daily and following after Jesus Christ. We can't serve our way into the good grace of God. We are saved by the free gift of grace, which was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And we can rejoice in knowing that this free gift of grace, which results in our forgiveness, it's received by faith. It's received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's right. No one's going to get to heaven and boast about everything they did to get there. Isn't that nice to know that we're not going to have to go to heaven and listen to everybody else talking about what awesome people they were and how they did all the right things in order to get there. And heaven would be horrible if that were the case. I can just imagine people I know just going on and on and on about how awesome they are and how much work they did. And nope, not going to happen. If we're going to boast in heaven, it's going to be a boasting about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Amen. We will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ for the way that he accomplished the work necessary for our salvation. At the same time, though, it's also important to understand that those who are truly born again believers, well, we've been saved unto good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. Let's consider the way that James puts it here in James chapter two. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14, here James declares, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or in other words, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Wow. I think we should just take a moment to let that sink in. That faith without works is dead. The faith that fails to manifest as good works is a dead faith. Therefore, the believer who fails to become a servant of our Savior is simultaneously failing to demonstrate the true evidence of a Christian conversion. If you claim that you've had a conversion experience and yet your life hasn't changed, you have to question whether or not there was a conversion experience. Because true faith that saves results in Christians who start serving. With that being the case, I encourage every believer to become the bondservants of our Savior as we carry the cross each and every day. And I like the way that Paul puts this here in Philippians chapter 2 as he helps us to understand that born-again believers should have a brand new worldview, which is according to the mind of Jesus Christ. It's Philippians 2 beginning at verse 3 where Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also where? In Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of what? A bondservant as he came in the likeness of men. Christian, listen, the, the mind of Christ was to come and be a bondservant for us so that we might be saved. That's why the deity of the Logos took on humanity in the incarnation to come and, and serve us in this way by offering himself as a living sacrifice for our sins. And now Paul is saying the same mind ought to be in you, Christian. Therefore, we've been called to follow in, in the footsteps of Jesus by becoming the bond servants of our Savior, of faith. That leads to good works. With this as the goal, Paul encouraged us to set aside every selfish ambition so that we can spend our time serving our Savior according to his perfect plan. And much like Simon, who literally bore the burden of Christ's cross, 
we are now being called and compelled to take up the spiritual cross every day as we become servers of our Savior. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, the Simon Standard not only helps us to become seekers and servers of our Savior, but the Simon Standard also helps us to become sharers. And to prove my point, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 23. I want to take one, one last pass here at verse 26. It's again here in verse 26 where Luke writes, Now as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain, a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, as we take one last look at this verse, we must not fail to notice that Simon here is called a certain man. He was just some certain man. That word certain was translated from a Greek word which was used of persons or things that the writer either can't or won't speak about with more specific detail. And in this case, it's probably a can't situation. I don't think Luke, at the time of this writing, could give more details about this Simon the Cyrenian. In this way, Luke is just informing us here that at this point in time, on the day of Christ's crucifixion, Simon was just some random dude there in Jerusalem. Simon the Cyrenian wasn't known to the disciples of Christ at the time when he carried the cross to Calvary. And yet Simon's connection with the Christian church, well, it appears that it it changed at some point in time. To prove my point, I want to take some time to consider Mark's account of this event. And so with this, let's turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. As you make your way to the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that there are scholars who believe that the gospel of Mark is one of the first New Testament books written and, and probably completed at some point in time between 55 and 59 A.D., as we consider his account found here in Mark chapter 15, well, there seems to be some evidence that Simon the Cyrene did in fact become a believer who plugged into the church, more than likely uh, in Rome, because Mark is writing Peter's account and Peter planted the church in in Rome and and, uh, so there might be some connection there. But regardless of uh, all, all of that. Let's just consider here what Mark says in Mark chapter 15. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 20. Here Mark writes, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, uh, here in this verse, we find Mark referring to the sons of Simon. Notice again, verse 21. There again, we learn that Simon the Cyrenian was the father of two boys, Alexander and Rufus. As we consider these new details, we should take a moment to ask, how did Simon going, uh, go, go from being you know, just some certain man How did he go from being some random dude to a a guy who who was known and, and, and a guy whose sons were known by name? Well, if you'll allow me a little more liberty to engage in some more speculation, it seems to me that Simon had probably become a follower of Christ Jesus who had plugged into the Christian community. Think about it. Why else would Mark know the names of of Simon's sons? Why else? Unless they had become believers who were also worshiping our Savior in the context of the Christian community. And and if that's the case, then it only stands to reason that Simon had become a believer after he saw the way that Jesus had died. Remember, he carried the cross following behind Jesus Christ. Simon carried the cross of Christ from the praetorium all the way to Calvary. And as he walked behind Jesus, he watched the way that our Messiah was being mocked and ridiculed by the crowd. He witnessed the way that Jesus responded like a lamb being led to the slaughter. I have no doubt that Simon was amazed when he saw the earth quaking and the rocks splitting and the darkness that covered the land on that very day. 
I have no doubt that he was moved by the compassion that Christ Jesus demonstrated as he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What kind of criminal deserving of death prays that kind of prayer about the very people who had just crucified him? After witnessing all of these things, it's my guess that Simon became a believer. And not only that, but I believe he went and shared the good news with his family as he described the way that Jesus died for our sins there on that cross. And not only that, but we can also assume here that Simon began bringing his family to church so that they could continue to learn more about Jesus. And therefore, Mark is able to say, yeah, Simon, you know, the the father of these two boys, Alexander and Rufus. Further evidence of my point can be found in Romans chapter 16. There Paul writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Now we can't say for certain here, but there are some scholars who believe that this Rufus is the same Rufus that we see back in Mark. That this Rufus also is the son of Simon. And one reason for believing this is because, you know, come on, how many parents are going to name their child Rufus? You know, Rufus, that's, that's what they name the dog, right? Yeah, that's not, a, that's not a real person's name. No, but seriously, you know, the, if this actually is the son of Simon, then uh, this is also the wife of Simon. Simon's wife and his son Rufus probably ended up there in Rome where they eventually became leaders there in the church of Rome. Not only that, but it's also possible that uh, Simon the Cyrenian went, went ahead and shared his testimony with others back in his home country. Proof of my point is found in Acts chapter 11. There we learn that those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." Here in these verses, we find this group of Christians being scattered after the persecution of Stephen, and they're arriving at the church there in Antioch, and it's there in Antioch where we discover there's a group of believers who had come from Cyrene. Now, we can't say for certain, but I can't help but to wonder if these Cyrenian saints had come to Christ because they heard Simon share his testimony about the day when he carried the cross of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then Simon provides us with an excellent example that every believer ought to follow. The excellent example that I'm speaking of is to become those who share our testimony about Jesus Christ. With his example in mind, I want to take some time to consider the importance of becoming believers who are sharing their testimony for the benefit of those who will listen. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presents to the Christians at the church in Philippi. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. See, it's here in the first chapter of Philippians where we find Paul. He's encouraging every Christian to go out and preach the good news because that's something that every Christian ought to do to preach the good news by sharing our testimony about about how we converted to Christ. And as we consider the instructions that Paul is presenting here in Philippians chapter 1, we must not fail to notice that Paul actually places a greater priority on accomplishing the preaching than he did on the motivation for the preaching. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Philippians chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 15, because here Paul declares, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's celebrating the fact that the gospel message was being preached. And while it's true that Paul was thrilled to discover that there were those sincere Christians who were preaching Christ with a heart of compassionate love, it's also true that he was also happy to hear that there were those who were also preaching from a place of pretense. 
And while it might seem strange that Paul would rejoice over those who are making a mockery of the gospel message, well, it'll help us to understand that, listen, the Lord can use those who preach Christ from a place of pretense. He can. The Lord can use anyone who preaches the gospel message regardless of why they're preaching it. Case in point, it was shortly after my conversion when I started sharing my faith with my unbelieving friends. And listen, it didn't take long to discover that many of them were mocking me behind my back. That's right. I came to find out that they were making fun of the message that I was preaching. But what they failed to realize is that as they were mocking the message, there were people who were listening. And some of the people who heard them mocking about the message that I was preaching, they started to come to me and ask me about my faith in Jesus Christ. And in this way, the, the, their mockery ended up giving me more opportunities to preach Christ to those who were curious. And as a result, some came to, to, to know the Savior Jesus Christ. And, and I know I've, I've told the story before, but listen, John Newberry, Pastor John there in Harker Heights, he's one of them. He was sitting around with some of my old friends. They were all, you know, in the same crew. And they were mocking me and making fun of my message and, and the, 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 the gospel that I was presenting to them. They were making fun of it and, and it grabbed his attention. And he wanted to know more. And so he came and found me and we sat down and talked and it, it wasn't long before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now, you know, he's grown and, and matured as a believer, and now he's pastoring the Calvary there in, in uh, Harker Heights, Texas. And sure, I mean, he is the worst pastor ever, but, but other than that, I mean, it's just an incredible story. To, to realize that it was the mocking of the message that grabbed his attention and led him to come to me to find out more. Christian, listen, if you're struggling to share your faith because you're afraid that some might mock the message, please understand, we can rejoice just like Paul, even when the unbelievers around us make fun of our faith. Because whether it's in pretense or whether it's for the right reasons, if Christ's name is being preached, that's good news. And God is able to use the preaching of those who mock our Messiah to lead people to him. Go figure. He's able to take the message, the, the mockery of those who make fun of the gospel message, he's able to use that to lead people to him. So rather than shrinking back in silence for fear of those who might make fun of us, uh, let's become those believers who continue sharing our own testimony. Let's share our testimony with our family, our friends, and anyone else who will listen. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a conversion story. And much like Simon, who I believe went and shared his story, we should as well. Let's rejoice also when we're ridiculed, knowing that the Lord is able to use the words of those who preach Christ out of envy and strife. Finally, I just want to remind you of the encouragement that King Solomon presents in Proverbs chapter 11. It's verse 30 where he declares, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. With that, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a tree that's bearing the fruit of righteousness? Am I a tree of life for the people around me? As I share my testimony with them about how they can have a new life in Jesus Christ? Am I walking in the wisdom of the Lord as I win souls for the sake of our Savior? And if not, then I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Simon, who, after witnessing the crucifixion of Christ Jesus, seems to have gone to share his testimony with family and friends so that they might also believe. As we begin to wrap up this message, it's, it's important for us to realize that 
you know, most of the people in the world who have achieved some status, whether we're talking about, you know, they get their picture printed in People magazine or, or, or they're featured on, you know, entertainment television or they're just some social media influencer, whatever that means. Uh, you know, most of these people aren't worthy of imitation. Oh, you know, their, their life might look glamorous and, you know, the, the money they've acquired might seem tempting and yet... They're not worthy of imitation. I've never personally watched that show, The Kardashians. I don't even understand what it's about. But there are people who look at that and just, they, they long for that kind of life. And, and they try to imitate those people. They, they try to drive around and live their life like, like, like they're at that same level or something. What level is that? It's ridiculous. These people are not worthy of imitation. And the reason why is because the standard that they're setting for this world does not glorify God. With that being the case, we do well to become those believers who are following in the footsteps of Christ. And we would do well to imitate those who have actually set a spiritual standard of what it looks like to take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, I just encourage you to consider the many, many examples that we find in the Bible, including Simon the Cyrene. And while it's true that the, it's very limited information about this man, like he, he, he wasn't uh, on every month's you know, cover of People magazine back there in the first century, you know, we, we know very little about this man, but what we do know is so important. The, the minor amount of information that, that we actually know is worthy of our imitation. The Simon standard helps us to become seekers who are obedient listeners, taking the time to seek our Savior prayerfully each and every day. The Simon standard helps us to become servers who are setting aside our own agenda so that we can take up the cross daily and follow the Lord. The Simon standard helps us to become sharers who are preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ as we go out and share our testimony with anyone who will listen. And as we apply this, uh, these three points to our lives, listen, I, the Lord Jesus will use the faith of those who will simply become imitators of this Simon standard. Let's pray.